Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Toby Lishtig, the TLS's fiction and politics editor, is here with me. Hello, Toby. When I say you're here with me, I mean only just, am I right? You've just flown in from one of the hot spots of Europe. Yes, I've been to Berlin and uh, inevitably um, my flight was delayed last night. So I got back very late last night. But anyway, it is now the morning and I'm here and I'm awake and freshly back and yes, delighted to join you. And did you have a fabulous time? I did. I had a fantastic time. We were there for 48 hours. Luckily, I, I know Berlin reasonably well, so I didn't feel the need to, you know, retread too many of the old tourist hotspots. And I could just sort of do the things I wanted to do. Um, and it was beautiful, beautiful weather. And it just felt very vibrant and exciting. And you did all sorts of things. I know you did. You read. You read a little bit. You read some sort of Berlin-related material. I read. No, I read some books that had absolutely nothing to do with Berlin. But I, <laughs> I quite like quite like going to different countries and then reading books that have nothing to do with those countries. I realise that's that's something I tend to do. Um, I sort of feel like you know you, you get enough of the atmosphere from the country itself. I, I like to be transported away from wherever I am. I don't know if that says something about my peculiar personality. But I read a, a book I've been meaning to read for ages on the flight over. Claire Keegan's Small Things Like These, which I'm pretty sure you've read. Oh, uh, it's more wonderful. than once. More, more than, than once. Well, it's, once. It's, it's, it's tiny. It's really a novella, and um, it is totally beautiful. And it's perfect for a flight. You read it in one sitting. You know, in an hour and a half flight or whatever or a train journey, or however you're getting around. And it's set in mid-1980s Ireland. It's about the Magdalene laundries. And it's, you know, it is it is a really beautiful, beautiful book. Damon Galgut reviewed it for the TLS, and he was also full of praise. So I read that. And actually, excitingly, because I, when I was previously on this podcast talking about summer books, 
I mentioned God's Children Are Little Broken Things by Adinze Ifeakandu, a Nigerian writer of short stories. And having said I was going to read that on holiday, I did. So, oh my goodness, that almost so, never happens. What we, exactly. what we say we're going to read, we actually read. So I fulfilled my promise and it is really beautiful. It's um, some stories of gay love in Nigeria, in Lagos in particular. And it's, it's so beautifully, beautifully done, really, really moving stories. So I, I heartily recommend that. I mean, we generally give details, don't we, of the books that we discuss, but why don't we add that one so that that, that sticks in people's minds? Because that sounds really interesting. I will just tell you that when you love the Claire Keegan, now you may conjure a picture now of me in the hills of Ireland, where it's set, New Ross is very, very near where I live. Read our listeners to the podcast will know this because we had recently Kevin Brazil was on the podcast and it's where he's from. So New Ross an actual place that we both entirely recognise from Claire Keegan's depiction of it. Right. I didn't know. I hadn't realised that. And in fact, I, yes, Kevin Brazil writes for me quite a bit. I hadn't realised that at all. And, and in fact, it's, you know, it's, although in a way it feels like it's set in a completely different century and different world, and it is a different century because it's mm. the 1980s, you know, it is, it is a world that is very, very close to our own, which is, which is particularly terrifying. And, you know, there's a, a postscript, of course, about the whole, terrible laundry system you know which I think the last one was closed down in 1996 mm. um so you know it really mm. is within touching distance isn't it now as you know Lucy and I often chat about gardens and we are encouraged by listeners to do so yes. uh but I know that you also visited gardens in Berlin well, yes, so I, I I can shoehorn them in or, or you can and I I, I, lo- I love listening to you and Lucy talk about gardens and I love you know I love talking about gardens myself I'm I'm probably a less able gardener than either of you two. In fact, the last thing I did in my own little You're younger. So You're I'm younger, young, Yeah, I, and, and, just, and, and just worse. I actually managed to kill a whole load of lovely little plugs by planting them in the wrong soil. But anyway, I'm going to move on from that. It's because one of the things I did in Berlin, this is something I've done before when I go there, because I, I think it's just wonderful. I went to Tempelhoferfeld, which is, um, for those listeners who don't know, it is the former the former airport in Berlin, which was decommissioned a long time ago. And rather than you know, being turned into luxury property developments for the enrichment of the already very wealthy, it was left open as a space for the residents of Berlin. I think it is the largest open air city space in Europe, perhaps, you know, that isn't a natural park. And it's this, you know, it's this enormous expanse of land with, you know, with a kind of crumbling airways still intact that's been taken over. And quite, a, well, actually, not, not a huge part of it, but a, but a lovely little part of it has been given over to allotments. Oh. So we had a lovely wander through there. Um, there were people hanging out at their allotments, listening to music, taking paddling pools down for their children, drinking beer, you know, even planting things, growing potatoes. And it was a really lovely way to get a sense of, of city life. And I thought it was just such a beautiful little project. But um, yeah, it's really worth a wander through there. And I'm pleased to say I didn't tread over on anyone's vegetables as far as I know. Now I'm going to have to go there just to see the allotments. As I say, you're, you're younger than I am. And I, I happen to know, listeners, that Toby also did a, a young person's thing. And he he went to see some, see, I don't know, here, experience <laughs> some, what I believe they're called banging techno. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm not that young. Um, but what, that's one of the wonderful things about, you know, about Berlin as well. Techno is for all ages, you know, even the middle age like me. So, yes, I did. I went to a, a, a club I haven't been to before called Sisyphus. The, you know the never-endingness of it and one, actually one of the reasons it is called Sisyphus is that it opens um, this particular night opens on a Friday night and it goes through till Monday morning 
Um, I'm pleased to say that I didn't stay there the entire time, but we went for about six or seven incredibly pleasurable hours um, to the very late on Saturday night and into Sunday morning and listened to some of the best, listened to dance to some of the best techno I have experienced for a very, very long time. And it was, it was completely wonderful. So I feel like I had a, at least a slice of the full Berlin experience. There you are, the you other are, version. You are rejuvenated. And thank you very much for tearing yourself away and coming back to us. What have you been up to? Well, well, I, well to? I am, I'm actually, I've, I've been tended, funnily enough, had my first potatoes of this year from my ah. own my own patch and uh they were very nice and also broad beans so I, it's quite a lot of gardening but i i do have a busy week i'm about to head off from ireland to liverpool to interview or be part of interviewing fran Liebowitz at her stage show uh, which is very very exciting and then as soon as i come back i head off to west cork to interview at the west cork literary festival zadie smith and nick laird so i have an exciting week in prospect fantastic although i don't think it will encompass six or seven hours of techno but we you know never say never even there in maybe bantry, an after party. <laughs> you never know even in bantry in the west of ireland techno may rise we must without further ado because we've had quite a lot of ado now haven't we uh, we must get to what we're doing this week coming up on this week's show very international show we have guests from all over the place devany loza joins us from arizona to shed light on the eventful naval career of jane austen's brother charles and we don our marigolds as jeremy allen introduces us to the plongeurs of paris but first Last year in the TLS, Devany Loza wrote about the connections between Jane Austen's family and the slave trade, a subject that's been under increasingly intense scrutiny. Now Professor Loza returns to the paper and casts the spotlight on Austen's youngest brother, Charles, whose career as a naval captain unfolded as the Navy was charged with enforcing the abolition of the slave trade. She joins us now from Arizona. Welcome, Devany. Great to be here, Alex. For a start, we should say we really thank you for being here. It is not only fast approaching the middle of the night where you are, it is also July the 4th. So we're particularly grateful to have you on the podcast and particularly interested in this essay that you've written, which is part of an ongoing project to examine race during the Regency, isn't it? Absolutely. And it's surprising how much more there is to say about Jane Austen and these subjects. There are new discoveries, and it's uh, really wonderful that the TLS has again given me a chance to share with its readers another set of discoveries. This time it's Charles, isn't it? You mentioned here and in your previous piece the connections between Jane Austen's father, the Reverend George Austen, and the slave trade in Antigua and between Henry Austin, her brother, and the anti-slavery movement. And you suggest that the Austin family's position changed significantly over decades, don't you? It certainly seems so. And I think there's room for more research still. But yes, in that piece last year, I looked at the social and legal connections of the father, Reverend George Austin's life and connections, and how those had changed 80 years later with his son Henry's connections to the anti-slavery movement. How does Charles fit in then? He is the youngest son, isn't he? Yes. And you know, Jane Austen was very close to him. She referred to him as our own particular brother, uh, 
seems to have had a lot of affection for him. He's the brother who gave the topaz crosses with his naval prize money to Jane and Cassandra. In his obituary, he lived much longer than Jane Austen. In his obituary in 1852, it describes him as having been uh, spent part of his life crushing the slave trade. And so what my piece examines is what does this mean? This idea that he was successfully suppressing the slave trade, that he was crushing the slave trade during these years in the 1820s. What did that look like? And it turns out there's quite a lot to say about it. Yeah, of course, it sounds, I mean, that is a very sort of big claim, isn't it, that his obituary made as if he had been, you know, part of his sort of mission in his life. And essentially, it was it was his job, wasn't it? It was what a naval captain would be required to do. Right. So after the 1807 abolishing of the slave trade, you know, the abolishing of slavery, colonial slavery itself didn't happen until 1833. But during that period Mm. between 1807 and 1833, the Navy was very much in charge of policing the slave trade on the seas. And that, yes, as you put it, it was absolutely part of Captain Charles John Austin's job. And he had been at sea for some time now, had he? He'd been, his career was in in the Navy. Yes, he started in the Royal Naval Academy at age 12, following his older brother Francis or Frank there, and spent his whole career in the Navy. And not as financially successful for him as it was for his brother or others. The family letters refer constantly to wishing that Charles had more money, but he did have much success both during the Napoleonic Wars and thereafter with uh, being in charge of ships and having uh, action and sometimes prize money. What's your sense of how the Navy personnel, particularly the commanders and captains of ships, reacted to this sort of new role that they had when the anti-slave trade legislation came in and that effectively their roles changed, didn't they? Yes. And I should say, Alex, that I come to this from the side of a literary critic and literary historian. So, you know, if you ask a military historian or, uh, you know, someone who specifically studies colonial history, you're going to get a better answer to this. And my sense is that things changed enormously from that period, 1807 up to 1833, just as the country's positions and uh, the will of the people, I think, started to change. But I do believe that there was likely in the 1820s still varying levels of enthusiasm for policing this. And it seems clear from this new information that Charles Austin was on the side of the abolitionists and saw himself as someone who was enthusiastically suppressing the slave trade during this period. So what then happened in 1826? This is the key episode that you you write about in your piece. He was in charge of a, a ship called the HMS Aurora and There they were, just sailing off Cuba. What happened? Yeah, so he and his crew came across this Spanish schooner that was flying a Dutch flag. And that already would have been a little suspicious, this this incongruity. The British and the Spanish had a treaty to halt the slave trade together. The Spanish might have been a little bit less enthusiastic about it than the British. uh, But that's a, a story that could be told and has been told elsewhere. But if the Dutch, quote unquote, Dutch ship, turned out to be Spanish, then what it meant was if it were transporting enslaved people, it could be seized and brought to the mixed courts of justice, the Spanish and British mixed courts of justice. So Charles, presumably Charles himself, but certainly a set of officers and some crew from the Aurora boarded this schooner. It was called the Nuevo Campeador. 
And the captain, Captain Botel, claimed that it had sugar. It was the cargo was sugar. The officers from the Aurora were said to have looked for quite some time. They didn't find anything amiss, but then they descended, somebody descended into the hold and there noticed the leg of a black man protruding from beneath a curtain. And when the curtain was drawn aside, this officer discovered more than 250 enslaved people in what was called a state of dreadful disease and starvation. And what's important about this whole account is that it became international news. And it became international news because Captain Austin himself either sent a letter directly to a newspaper or it was his letter was forwarded to a newspaper in Plymouth. And from there, it just exploded. It was in dozens of newspapers. He sort of had his 15 minutes of fame telling the story of finding these enslaved people on board the Nueva Confiador and bringing the ship to the mixed courts of justice. And there are some really chilling details in your piece, obviously. It's the most horrific discovery. And I was very interested that you mentioned that even in the newspapers of the time, some of those details were thought to be too vivid. They were thought to be, in a sense, sort of prurient, I suppose. Yes, I mean, that. I should add that that's my interpretation. Of course, editors can cut things for lots of reasons, right? <laughs> editors can cut things for reasons of length, and, uh, but, but it seems to me telling that the initial letter from Captain Austin that was first published included a detail of throwing a yam amongst these starving enslaved people and that there was a subsequent fight for it. And one detail is that one of the enslaved people bit another in the shoulder in a dreadful manner is what is reported in the letter. And some newspaper editors left that line out. They left in the line about the enslaved people fighting over the vegetable being starving to the degree that they fought over one vegetable, but not the detail about the biting. And, you know, the other thing I say in the piece is that this is clearly a report that's addressed to white readers. I mean, it's very much told from a white gave's perspective, Mm. but it's, I think, meant as it was reported and as we can assume Captain Austin wrote it to get people upset, (laughs) to get uh, white readers upset about what is happening in colonial slavery and the slave trade and to help them see that these are horrible circumstances as they were described. Were they, again, your sense with the absolute caveat that you're not, as you said, a naval historian, (laughs) but this wasn't an isolated incident, presumably. People were trying to evade these anti-slave trade laws and Presumably this wasn't the only time something of this nature happened, but was it perhaps one of the most sort of high profile occasions? Well, because of Captain Austin's letter, I think it was certainly one of the most high profile of these captures from the late 1820s. That is, it was one of the most publicized. Uh, It was captured in August of 1826. And I do recall from another scholar's work that was the last capture of that year in August. But yes, to have a number of these captures from these 20 or so vessels that were assigned to the West India Station, to have a number of those each year would not have been uncommon. But I think it was less common for the details to be shared at home and then for them to be lifted by newspapers in Europe, not only in in Britain, but in, in Europe and the United States. These details were published in dozens of places. I mean, it really did kind of go viral. But as I say in the piece, there may have been some personal reasons for Charles Austin to 
want this more heroic version of his having, you know, gone in and helped emancipate these enslaved people. But he might have, might have wanted that story to get out rather than other parts of the story that are told in state papers. Yes, of course. I mean, you know, everybody wants to, I suppose, to be the hero of, of their own lives. But at this point, what tools did he have? I mean, what did he do with the slave cargo that he discovered? There he is just, you know, off Santiago de Cuba. What could he do? What did he do? Right. And so the details I've told you so far are the things that he shared that were is shared in the newspapers. But the state papers versions were the official documents he needed to give to the state. And what they tell us is that Captain Austin consulted a surgeon, determined that there were at least 30 people who needed significant medical care or last rites. And he immediately sent them to nearby Santiago de Cuba for that care. And a number of them did die. And he also would have tried to make sure that those who survived would be emancipated under the system that was in currently in place. But by leaving them behind with the rest of the captured ship, he must have known that he was jeopardizing these people who were left behind and what their status would be. But a bigger gaffe that he made was that at the time of the ship's capture, this Spanish slaver, Captain Botel, asked him to be allowed, asked Captain Austin to be allowed to go on shore because he said he needed to see his dangerously ill wife. And Charles Austin says in these reports that he agreed to let Captain Battelle go after getting a solemn promise from the captain that he would return. He told officials he let Battelle go because it was on the score of humanity. But as I think your readers will not be surprised to hear, Captain Botel did not return, and Charles Austin waited fruitlessly for a few hours for him to come back. And so this was a real gaffe. He basically let the captain of the ship escape on, quote unquote, the, you know, the score of humanity. I mean, there are lots of ways that these white gentlemen's agreements, I think, you know, look different to us now than they would have then. But he could have put the uh, emancipation of these enslaved people in jeopardy and the condemning of the ship in jeopardy by letting the captain escape his custody. I mean, that does seem extraordinary now, doesn't it? I mean, partly a sort of naivety that this captain was going to return, but also the idea that you would do something on humanitarian grounds in such an inhumanitarian situation, that you would extend that that feeling to somebody who had shown no feeling for other human beings. I mean, it does seem shocking. And, you know, I think the only thing one could say in Charles's defense is that he was apparently himself uh, quite enthusiastic and affectionate and warm and perhaps not a very hardened naval captain. He was seen as uh, having a very sweet disposition. He was also said to be unpunctual. He, yeah, but he, he, when you hear his personality described in the family papers, he doesn't sound like a man who would bring to that situation the kind of scrutiny you'd want to see that you're being lied to <laughs> in that moment. Also, Charles Austin had lost a wife to illness and had lost some children to illness. So this, this idea that he would have sympathy for someone who had a, an ill family member, I think, also squares with the other details we know about him. But yes, it looks terribly naive. I was very struck, I'm horrified, by your description of the lives of the emancipados in Cuba, though they're ostensibly free, their rights and liberties are extremely circumscribed, aren't they? Yes, and I benefited very much from the work of the historian Henry Lovejoy, 
who talks about the differences between the emancipados and the enslaved people in Cuba in this period as being a very fine line. Emancipados could be forced to do years of hard labor. And after that, they might still be resold into plantation slavery. So the idea, again, that that Charles Austin was liberating these formerly enslaved people into a better life seems, at least as historians are working now, not to have been as true as we might want to imagine. How about that? Um, You know, they were forced Mm. to wear plates around their neck with numbers on them. The hallmarks of being an emancipado, and there were at least several thousand of them in this period in Cuba, they do not sound like freedom, I think, when you read the lives that they would have had. I wonder if you could just before we move on to how this sort of impacts Austin's scholarship, because obviously this particular incident took place nearly a decade after her death. Just tell us what happened to Charles after that? What did he do afterwards? Because he had a certain degree of fame of a celebrity now, didn't he? Right. And, you know, what first brought me to studying him was his connection to another literary family, the Porters. And I've just uh, finished a book on the Porter sisters, Jane and Anna Maria Porter, whose brother Robert Kerr Porter and Charles Austin knew each other. So for several years after this um, Nuevo Campeador episode, Charles and his crew in the Aurora were going from South America and across the West Indies basically doing colonial business. Uh, But he was also reading novels and in touch with another brother of literary celebrities. And I think that's really interesting. I think he was both fostering Jane Austen's legacy and reputation, but he was also meeting other military uh, and, and diplomatic men who had literary sisters. And Sir Robert Kerr Porter gave Charles Austen a copy of his sister's novel, Honor O'Hara, which is a kind of homage to Jane Austen's fiction and Pride and Prejudice in particular. And Charles Austen read it. So I love the idea that as all of this is going on, Charles Austen is still reading and talking about his sister's books. And so I think we often think of the 1820s as this period when Jane Austen was sort of out of sight, out of mind, literarily. And I don't think that's true. And Charles Austen himself was very much involved in his sister's legacy in conversations with literary people about her importance. Thinking about, you know, more generally, and and I should say getting you back onto firmer ground, forgive the pun, the maritime law on which I've been sort of quizzing you so far, and into literary scholarship. How do you feel scholarship of Austin's work is taking account of discussions about slavery and colonialism and the political shifts of the time? Because, of course, this has been under scrutiny for a long, long time, hasn't it? Certainly. And, you know, I think the Legacies of Slavery database and Catherine Hall's work at UCL. And there have just been decades of important work on Austin uh, adjacent kinds of historical questions. But I don't think we've answered all of the questions we need for understanding Austin's writings or Austin's life or her collateral descendants, her relatives around these issues. There's still, as I was saying before, I think there's still much less to learn. So I think the state of Austin scholarship in these questions is still one of growth, one where I think we've had not enough nuance 
quite frankly, yet. And, you know, I blame myself, <laughs> uh, you know, for that as well. There are those of us who've been doing this work for a while on Austin really should have been turning in more substantial ways to these questions. More of us should have been. There are some people who've been doing this work for a very long time, but I think it needs to be work for everyone. And so I see this as an exciting moment where there's been more of a realization that this is work for everyone who reads, cares about, and writes about Austin. And, you know, I'm grateful to be learning alongside. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowlin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowlin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Um, the people who've been doing this work, as you say, for some time. I want to ask you, you just mentioned now, but in, in closing, I wonder if you would tell us a bit about your other project on the Porter Sisters. Tell us a little bit more about them. Oh, thank you, Alex, for asking that. Yes. Again, this goes back to this question of how can we learn um, the context in which Jane Austen wrote. And I think one of the ways that we can learn it is looking at her family and her family's connections to a larger literary conversation and literary circle. But we really haven't learned as much as we ought to about Austen's celebrated contemporaries. And I think it's really fascinating that the most famous Jane writing in the early 19th century, writing fiction in the earliest 19th century, now we would say, well, it was Jane Austen. She was moderately successful in the 1810s. The most famous Jane writing in the early 19th century was Jane Porter. Uh, she was a pioneering historical novelist. 
She also had the sister, Anna Mariah Porter, who wrote that novel, Anna O'Hara, I mentioned earlier. But between the two of them, they published 26 books and they've never had a full biography. So I am really thrilled to be able to bring that story to readers. I think readers who care about Austin are going to care about the Porters. And the title of the book is Sister Novelists, The Trailblazing Porter Sisters Who Paved the Way for Austin and the Brontes. And I don't think that's an overstatement. <laughs> the Porters wrote 26 books separately and together. And Jane Porter's novels, we know, sold by the 1840s, sold as many as a million copies in the United States alone. So they were enormously, enormously celebrated. They saved every scrap of paper, seemingly, from their lives. And they got in all sorts of romantic scrapes and scrapes with editors and publishers, the kind of thing that I think we really wish we had for Jane Austen, right? You know, we only mm -hmm. have those 160 or so letters of hers that survive. There's a lot we can't tell about her life and her context, we're guessing. But with the Porters, it all survives, thousands of letters. And so I think those people who care about Austen are gonna learn new things about her through the Porter sisters, but the Porter sisters deserve their own telling and I'm glad to have a chance to do that. I mean, look upon me kindly here, Devaney. I haven't heard of them. Is that an aberration? No, and sadly, right? You'd think any mm. sisters who published a million copies, right? I mean, I'm not talking about some delightfully obscure sisters who were toiling away in obscurity. These were women with global fame. Jane Porter's most famous books, The Thaddeus of Warsaw from 1803 and The Scottish Chiefs from 1810. And they had an incredibly long tale. As Austen's fame was rising by the end of the 19th century, Porter's was falling. And so they, they had a, a moment, in fact, where they could even be mistaken for each other. There is an edition of the Scottish Chiefs from the late 19th century that says by Jane Porter, author of Pride and Prejudice and Sense and Sensibility. So, you know, these Janes could even have been confused by someone in a, in a publishing house at some point. But no, you're not unusual for having not heard of them. But I hope to shine a spotlight back onto them. Sir Walter Scott gets more credit for inventing the historical novel than I think he deserves. But it's especially crushing that he never credited the inspiration of the Porter sisters on his own writing because they were childhood acquaintances and right. the Porters would have said friends. And so I think Scott's not being more generous with acknowledging their contributions to literary history is also something that is a wrong that was done to them. Well, I'm really fascinated to read about them and, you know, a discovery of an entirely new writer or indeed two writers that you've never heard of is a joyful and fascinating thing. But God, how interesting who gets entirely written out of history. Devani, thank you so much. That's been completely fascinating. Thank you very much again for joining us on the 4th of July. And thank you for this fascinating piece in this week's paper. Devani Loza, thank you so much. Such a pleasure, Alex. Thank you. Still to come on the show, Jeremy Allen describes the grime, the grease, and the grit it takes to survive as a Parisian waiter. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts, and you'll never miss an episode.
Welcome back to the TLS podcast. Now, if you're heading over to Paris this summer, or indeed if you're already there, you're quite likely to be looking forward to a glass of Ricard and a plate of Moule Marinière at one of the city's celebrated brasseries. And of course, you'll be aware of the behind the scenes work it takes to make your evening out seem effortless and luxurious. But you might not realise quite how much work. The subtitle of Edward Chisholm's book, A Waiter in Paris, gives us a clue. Adventures in the dark heart of the city. And to explain exactly how dark this heart is, we have Jeremy Allen with us now. Jeremy, hi. Hello. How are you doing? Um, I'm good, thank you. I'm good. And, I'm... and you're phoning in from your own holiday, I believe. I am indeed. I mean, I'm in Spain. It's, it's quite hot here, but it's not quite as hot as a, a, a Parisian kitchen. <laughs> I tell you, so, this this is the podcast on which we have people dialing in from hot locations. We've already had Arizona today. Oh, this is oh. this is this is real summertime stuff. This is fantastic. That is exotic. <laughs> and when you say it's not as hot as a Parisian kitchen, you're actually you're speaking of your own experience, aren't you? And we'll talk about Edward Chisholm's book shortly. But you know, you reviewed this book as someone who has once worked in a Parisian kitchen, as a, as a plongeur, no less. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely not the, the nicest job in the world. And anyone who's read um, Dan and that. Paris and London will have had some sort of insight into that. As a writer, I thought, oh, well, I, you know, almost like it was some kind of, um, I don't know, um, literary kind of rite of passage that I go and work in a kitchen. And somewhere in the back of my mind, I had this sort of romantic idea that it would, it would be experience. I knew it would be hard work. So I thought, but of course, I, I didn't know how much hard work. I mean, um, even was... with your well, even, even having read down and out in Paris and London, you, you, did, or did you just think things might have changed 90 years on? Well, exactly. You, you, you sort of think that they might have better machines and that kind of thing. I mean, the taps are probably better. I'll say that. But it's a weird thing that you think I, it was, I was on Craigslist and, and this job came up and I, and I was extremely broke. But I thought, oh, well. I'll email them. I mean, you know, I never sort of wanted to email the Poon Militia to sort of, um, you know, but I don't know why. It's kind of like, yes, there's something romantic about it. No, there's not. It's a really filthy, disgusting job. You come home bleeding. My Dr. Martins were absolutely ruined. I think that there's a general lack of respect. I mean, it's just appalling. I would say it's, you know, subhuman. Um, <laughs> How long did you stick it out for? No, well, not as long as Edward Chisholm. I mean, he's incredible. He has this sort of, well, obviously we'll come on to the book in a minute. I mean, he's almost Machiavellian in his like drive to rise within this sort of subcultural structure. I lasted mm, four weeks, I think, and fell out with a pastry chef. And, that and were, was, you simul- yeah. were you simultaneously trying to write, like Chisholm, uh, like Orwell? Was there a yes, it, well, exactly. I was trying to write, but it, it just wasn't really possible. I mean, you just came home absolutely exhausted. And the thing was, I mean, the people I worked with work sort of 14-hour shifts. Now, I was working five hours or something. And I mean, you know, that probably says a lot about me, but it was... The, the other thing was they would sort of say that everything had to be done. So you... You'd be working there for an hour that you weren't paid for, which, you know, obviously I I didn't particularly, uh, I was not very happy about, but I didn't really have much choice at the time. So they exploit you any way they can, really. I love that verb that comes up that you mentioned in the piece, se débrouiller. What does it mean to kind of just to get it done, to sort of wreck yourself getting it done? 
Debrouille. Yeah, I looked it up. It actually means resourcefulness. So, um, yeah, it's not a word that I, I used. I mean, I, my French isn't amazing, so it's not one that I'd slip into into conversation. But it's just a, exactly it's this kind of, you know, the task is impossible, but you somehow get it done. Well, that's how, that's how all well. That's it. I'm not sure if I have that within me. <laughs> <laughs> what, what about Chisholm then? Did, did he get the task done? And, and actually, he wasn't he wasn't quite as lowly as a plongeur, was he? He sort of worked his way up from a slightly higher level. Yeah, he starts as a runner. So, so he's, he's in the front of the kitchen. He explains it, the whole hierarchy of the restaurant very well. And it kind of, I think it sort of definitely, it's never explicit, but it kind of it is, is a really good example of, of our sort of global capitalistic system I mean oh that's how it came to me but yes no he's, he's at the front of the kitchen he starts as a runner he can't even speak French at that time so he's just kind of nodding and um and I really really related to that that kind of there are words redacted and you just after a while you just kind of you don't know what's being said but you just think within the context and, and you start and you start to cheat just because you get tired of telling people you can't speak French so he actually um, he redacts words in the book to give a sense of that experience is that right exactly yeah which is really clever it's the the, the way he does it so you're, you're just kind of but but you get a context you kind of go with him it's really well done um but yeah as we were saying he, he starts as a runner but he, he starts to notice things around him and he, he sees that the waiters are you know they're the ones who are, who are getting tips so it becomes his absolute focus this sort of myopic focus that he must become a waiter he will become a waiter I won't spoil it but um <laughs> you to any of the tips? how does one rise up the ranks of a waiter is that you know is it through hard work or charm or subterfuge what are the tricks that he uses well I think a bit of all of those I mean yeah he's almost sort of Machiavellian in his in his quest and the, the, there's a point where he explains that there are no in France you there's no such thing as transferable skills you don't really once you're on a path then you tend to stick to that path. It's quite strange. In like in England, you see people sort of, um, you know, George Osborne go from Chancellor Exchequer to the Evening Standard. You know what I mean? Uh, and it's quite odd. In France, it's just you know, you just kind of you just keep going, and you're kind of stuck in that position for life. And I, I met people who were exactly in that sort of situation. So you mean if you start as a plonger, you may well get marooned at the plonger station, well, forever. Um, whew, yeah, well, actually, I mean, well, not you, not, obviously, you were out no. in, in, in four weeks, as we know. Yeah, well, that, that's true. But the thing is, I mean, even when things got desperate, it's kind of, I sort of knew that there would be, you know, that I could kind of write my way out of it with enough sort of, I had something to fall back on. But certainly, you know, immigrants who would be, who would have moved to Paris, that chances are that, you know, might end up getting a job as a plonger and staying there. Yeah, that's true. Although with plongers, the turnover is pretty, there's, there's a big turnover, yeah. This sense of, sort of arriving in France, not being able to speak the language, having to work lowly jobs, of course, it will be redolent of the immigrant experience more generally across the world. And I, and I wondered if there was something about the book that gave us a particular insight into what it feels like to be new in a place, having to compete with a bureaucracy as well. You talk about this kind of Byzantine system that Chisholm has to deal with. Is it something that seems particularly central to France or is this more generally about what the immigrant experience might be like for so many people across the world? Yeah, I think it probably is more general. Certainly, yeah, I think that that's definitely true. What kind of things in particular did Chisholm have to contend with then when he was dealing with French bureaucracy? 
Oh well, yeah, you're right. I mean, I mean, I mean, the bureaucratic side of it is is very, very difficult indeed. I was very lucky that I was with with my partner, and she spoke better French than I did. But um, I mean, just trying to get a national insurance number, and then and then there's that um, what do they call it? Le dossier. If you want to go, if you want to live somewhere, you you have to have um, amassed uh, a, a number of kind of testimonials from landlords and, and, and that kind of thing. And um, you have to present these to get a place. So obviously, if you haven't lived there, then it's very difficult. So they're, they're just these sort of little um, odd quirks. But I, I guess everywhere has, has its quirks. It's just, um, you know, France is particularly bureaucratic. I mean, it's, it's a French word. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned the hierarchy a bit earlier, and, and that's, that's something we we, we associate with the restaurants, you know, along with the long shifts and the grueling physical labour and, and the shouting. What, what do we sort of actually learn about the way in which French restaurants or Parisian restaurants in particular are still structured by Chisholm's book? He refers to it as the underworld and, and employees kind of pass through into this other um, part of, you know, of Paris that you don't see. He says in, in the book, I think he says that there's a Paris you see, that Paris you don't. And I want to take you behind the facade. I think within it, you have the front of house, which is treated slightly better, and the back of house. And in there you have, there's a hierarchy and you have the boss who is also a subordinate and um, is in charge, but he's not really making any money either. There's a definite sense of divide and rule, I think. Certainly when I, from my own experience, I, I work with two Polish plongers who were, remarkable absolute dynamos of men i mean the sort of people who would you know if the chap's head was was cut off you put it on ice and then go to the hospital later you know what i mean and he would tell on me basically he's not working hard enough he's he's not you know he's not good enough and um, did, did you resent him for that or, or did you were you accepting of the fact that you you, <laughs> you weren't working as hard as him and there i mean the thing was i wasn't working as hard as him but i was working as hard as i could and i remember my boss who was a he was English, actually, and he'd obviously just come out of university and was working there. I don't know why. And he, and he came and sat me down and said, Jeremy, I don't think you're working hard enough. And I said, well, actually, I think I am. I'm working really, really as hard as I possibly can. And uh, I don't think I can, I can do anymore. So if you, you know, if you, if you don't like it, I'll, I'll leave. And he was like, mm, oh, OK. And he, so he took it on board and I didn't hear any more. Um, but that was, that was just a moment of frustration because I was like, well, I'm absolutely killing myself here. I'm covered in cuts and bruises and, you know, whatever else and grime. And, but um, yeah, maybe I wasn't working hard enough. In comparison, certainly not. I was really interested, uh, Jeremy, this is kind of a personal interest, I guess, uh, because my dad was a, a waiter for much of his life and, and latterly a, a restaurant manager. Mm. And I tell you, you know, the subject of tips was never really far from household conversation and particularly at sort of times like Christmas. I mean, you know, tips paid for Christmas. But the, again, it's a French word, the, the trunk, the trunk system where you kind of divide up the tips that customers leave according to your relative importance in the hierarchy of mm. the restaurant. Do plongeurs get any of the trunk or, or not? That's a good question. I don't, rem I don't remember being bestowed with riches, I must admit. Um, mm. there, there might have been, you know, a couple of pounds here and there, but... Um, it was, uh, I think, the by the time it trickled down, I don't think there was there was a great deal left, to be honest. I suppose this links to a thing you said earlier about this being a microcosm of the capitalist system. You know, the people mm -hmm. at the bottom of the ladder get 
less mm -hmm. um, generally than the people at the top. And I wonder, does this feel like an opportunity for people who are who are new to new to a city, new to a place, trying to work their way up, trying to work as hard as they can? Or is it, you know, in your view and in Chisholm's view, is it are we talking about pure exploitation here? You know, is it as as black and white as that? Oh yeah, it's it's pure exploitation and exploitation. I mean, um, but but I mean, you know, he 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 thrives within the system. So you know, there's something perverse about his sort of enjoyment of it. I think you know, he he lays bare his own sort of ambition and his you know kind of the, the way he is. It's beautifully done. But yeah, I, I think it is exploitative. It's one of those things where you read it and um, it will make your next restaurant experience a, a more uncomfortable one. And I suppose the difference between Chisholm and, you know, and Orwell, of course, and many other, you know, plongeurs or lowly restaurant staff is, of course, both Chisholm and Orwell and you to, to an extent, you know, you, you knew or hoped you were going to have an out, you had a writing career ahead of you, or you hoped you did. I mean, Orwell himself obviously came from a, you know, quite a well-to-do background. Is Chisholm very aware of this as he's writing, that, you know, that he's, if not a tourist in this experience, because, you know, he's doing it and he needs the money and he's working yeah. hard, is he aware of the difference between him and some of the other people who, as you said earlier, you know, might actually struggle to transcend their plongeurdom? He's possibly in denial for a bit. I don't know. I mean, I mean, he certainly does need it. He's throwing everything into it. He really is a brewer. I mean, he's so resourceful the way the way he does it. I mean, but yes, I think there is that sense, and he does he does sort of admit to that in the end, you know. But you know, writing is is incredibly precarious as well. I mean, it's a dangerous profession to just sort of jump into. I see people all the time saying, "Oh." By the way, I'm going freelance. And I think, no, <laughs> don't do it. Don't do it. It's, it's but, true. It's, it's hardly as if you're there, you're being a waiter and you're thinking one day I'll exchange this shining, this cutlery for the great riches that writing mm. book reviews and voice yeah. is going to bring me. It doesn't really work like that, does it? No, no, exactly. Exactly. It's his day book isn't it which is um yeah he will be writing more is he is he a writer we should have on our radars i mean do you do you think from the kind of quality of the the, the writing alone that he's he's someone we, we we will be hearing much more about in future yeah i love this book i thought it was really good it's a kind of memoir i would be interested to see what he what he does next or you know whether he's got more entertaining sort of um stories that he can that he can draw from certainly or whether he'll you know i, I don't know I, I don't really know anything about him that he comes from Dorset. I'm a West Country boy myself. And um, he moved to Paris in 2012 and I moved there in 2013. So there's certainly some kind of shared experience there. Do you think but, you would have had a happier time in the kitchens of Paris had his book been available to you then? Um, well, I don't know really, because again, I sort of, you know, I, I mean, I actually reread um, Down and Out in Paris in London just before I moved over. And that really should have been a, a red flag, you know. Um, <laughs> so I, I'm not sure that, it, that that would have helped either particularly, but who knows? I mean, I certainly would not recommend becoming a plancher. If one can avoid it. If, if one can avoid it, absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's the thing. Um, what were you writing, or what were you failing to write when, when you were in Paris having that same experience? Yeah, so um, I'm a music journalist. I've been a music journalist for a long time, but then I went freelance shortly before I moved to Paris. I didn't realise how poor I'd be. I, I thought this would be fine. And then, and then I moved to Paris, and I, I sort of gambled on the fact that 
I could write about being in Paris and there would be, you know, people would be sort of like, wow, man moves to Paris. And then, of course, when I, when I got to Paris, I realised, well, quite a few people moved to Paris and maybe it's not that, not that extraordinary. You know, you need to put some kind of spin on it, which I didn't really, that didn't really work out. So I was being a music journalist and I was uh, struggling. And, you know, I'm still a music journalist and uh, I'm doing a little bit better. Uh, well, I'm a culture journalist, but I'm, I'm a music journalist. And um, it's, yeah, it's tough, but you uh, you, you keep going uh, because you love it, I suppose. And Fruits have very recently been born as well, haven't we? We haven't got much time, but you've recently written a book about Serge Gainsbourg, haven't you? I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit mm. uh, about that. Relax Baby, we call the artistry and audacity of um, Serge Gainsbourg. There have been other accounts of, of Gainsbourg, particularly in French, but not, not so much written in English. And he's... He's a rapscallion. I mean, he's, he's such a fascinating figure, so contradictory. You know, there's a kind of people think he doesn't care. And, and yet at the core, he's, he's such a needy, pathetic man in some ways, you know, but, um, but you love him, too. And obviously he's incredibly controversial. You know, I, I thought it'd be interesting to, to look at it from from the time we live in now. You know, would he be cancelled? Would he would would people what would happen? I mean, you sort of think. Almost certainly, yes. But then there's this other thing where, you know, he never apologises. So I just happened to have seen this very recently because I was watching the Martin Scorsese and Fran Leibovitz documentary, Pretend It's a City, and there's a clip of Gainsbourg. He's complaining about very high taxation mm. in France and he's on a chat show and he suddenly starts to burn money. He says, I might as well burn money. And then he says, it's illegal. So throw me in prison. At least I'd be on a diet, he said, which I just just made me. I thought well, it's very offensive to burn money when people don't have enough money, not to mention illegal. But also that was very funny. Well, throw me he, in prison, he, at least I'll be on a diet, <laughs> he said. No, it was, it was very funny, definitely. I mean, the, the, the amount of controversy he caused was remarkable and also very funny. But there's also, he's kind of, he, he has to, to drink to live up to this character and then he has this alter ego called Gansbar who's always drunk and in a way this this kind of alter ego this Gansbar character kind of consumes him and eats him in a, in a way and it's, it's, it's quite sad though the sort of the, the fact that he has to play up to being this person all the time and you know with the jeton attached to his lip and you know of course it kills him you know in the end but what a life and what music do you think we deal with him or we think about him differently in Britain than the French do? Has he, has he got a kind of different persona over here? Yeah, I mean, I think the French get him better because obviously he speaks in French uh, or sing, <laughs> and sings in French, so which, which is helpful. So, yeah, I think our perception of him is, is more a caricature. And also he's a lot more famous there. So, you know, over here we only know maybe... His twelve to Melody Nelson, if you're kind of you know really digging into it, but yeah, the, he's such a complex character. I mean, I suppose everyone who's a biographer will say that about the, the person they're writing about. But Gansbourg is really, I mean, is is he's astonishingly layered, and, and his music's like that as well. I mean, he, he kind of he was thieving Chopin and Beethoven and just kind of chucking it into his music. He was, he was, he was kind of like a, a, a Dadaist. And um, in a sense, this, his kind of cutting things up and putting them together and then claiming they were actually his when he, he thought of them. It was all quite modern. 
Well, it's been fantastic talking to you, Jeremy, from the, from the highs of Gansborg to the lows of Prongerdom. Um, uh, <laughs> Thank God you got out like, of that kitchen. My goodness. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> <laughs> And thanks well, thank for joining in from your holiday. We really appreciate it, Jeremy Allen. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I had, I had a great time. Thank you. time for this week our thanks go to Devani Loza and Jeremy Allen thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Charlotte Pardy we'll be back next week but for now from Toby Lishtig and from me goodbye softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.